Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Dean Rogers Show today. I've got Mr. Matt Larson. What's up, Matt? How's it going? It's good, man. Uh, I'm really excited because I have seen you online for years and years now, and we haven't really truly connected. Like this is our first time talking, so I'm gonna be like ready to with my popcorn, ready to learn, ready to uh, to receive information because um, I've noticed you've been a great educator, someone who's who's really gotten great at their craft. So why don't you just share with the listeners, give them you know, a quick highlight reel about kind of who you are and what you're about. Yeah. So, you know, <clears throat> I got into real estate in 2005. So I've been doing deals now for 18 years. Um, I've done over 4,000 deals. I, I think it's actually over 5,000 now. Uh, I stopped keeping track a long time ago. Um, but, uh, you know, I've done everything from you know, lots and lots of wholesaling, tons of fix and flips, uh, lots of rental properties. Um, you pretty much name it, you know, I've done it uh, because I've been in it this thing for a while. I've, I went through the downturn of 08 and, uh, and did really well with that. Hey guys, welcome to the Dean Rogers Show, where we talk about real deals that we're doing and bring on awesome guests to talk about how they're finding success in their business to inspire and motivate you. Don't forget to like and subscribe. All right, see you on the show. I don't know how detailed you want me to go. I can tell a little bit more about my story and how I got here um, if you want. But um, uh, 2008 hit, I had about 30 houses in my portfolio. A uh, little bit of cash, not very much because I started in 05. But by from 2008 to 2013, my portfolio grew from 30 houses to 450 houses. Wow. Um, not all those were houses. Some of those were apartment buildings, duplexes, fourplexes, things like that. Um, they weren't doors. <laughs> they weren't doors. Um, they were properties. And uh, and I own most of that stuff myself. I did have a 50-50 partner in, uh, in some of that, some of those deals. But for the most part, um, I fly solo. I don't, I don't do a lot of partners anymore. Um, so most of my, all my real estate now is owned by me. So, um, wow. in 2000, uh, so in 2000, what was it? Basically 2020, I recognized that, um, the market was pretty much going to the peak. So I made a heavy push to start selling off a lot of my portfolio. I'm a, one of those guys that's a big believer in, you know, buy low, sell high. And, uh, and so I, I was able to, I wasn't, I, it, when you own as many properties as me, you can literally crash a market locally if you list them all. So you have to be strategic about it and do so many per month. Otherwise you become your own competition. Um, so I wasn't able to get all of them sold, um, during the lat during this peak of 2021, but I got close. Um, I sold about 350 properties in about three years. And, wow. uh, so I still have about a hundred properties left that, that I bought. A lot of those were bought down during the the downturn, so my basis in them is very small, and uh, I'm I'm, you know, I'm very big into um, I'm not a leverage. I don't like to leverage super hardcore. I don't do a lot of private money and stuff like that. Um, I, I like to utilize bank financing for the buy and holds, and uh, I'm really big into wholesaling as a method to your, your wholesaling business. And we can dive in to different things as you as you want to, but your wholesaling business should be your 
your lead generation company and it should be your your business that feeds all the other um, entities. Meaning if you're going to do buy and holds, don't do buy and holds with, you know, trying to leverage every penny out of those deals. A lot of the bird technique is very popular and that's great. Yeah. I've done, I've done thousands of those. Um, but um, you got to be careful. You know, I think as I've gotten older, I'm 48 now. I started when I was 30. As I've gotten older, I want to take less risks. So, you know, when I was in my 30s, I was maxing, you know, I would I would max out every penny that I could pull out of a property and 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 leverage it like crazy. And I don't really do that anymore. Um, I'm very more more along the lines of of safety. So really what you should do, in my opinion, is you should wholesale. And as you wholesale, you're generating, you know, earned income or active income into uh, your pocket, which you then turn around and parlay into your buy and holds and your uh, fix and flips. Um, and then 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 you get really good at wholesaling and then every exit strategy works. If you want to buy and hold, you're, you're, you're cheap. You're, you're buying houses at a good price. If you want to fix and flip, you got them, got them coming at you. So I'm very big on um, on on really getting really, really good at, at wholesaling. Dude, I could not agree more. Uh, I undeniably think that the best way to get started and most people stop there, but I also believe the best way to continue running your business is with wholesaling because you're getting your cash conversion cycle way shorter, right? You're getting money in the door and closed. Uh, it's a much more transactional type business. You can streamline your, your systems and processes so much more, make it run like a business rather than a custom design shop for every flip that you have, right? And, mm -hmm. um, and like you said, when you get really good at that, you then cherry pick all the best deals that you want to flip and keep as rentals. Um, mm -hmm. so everything you unpack there, you, I, I just got a ton of questions here for you. So how did, how did you go from 30 doors to 450 over those incredible to buy years? What, what prepared you for that? Were you financial? You said you didn't have much money saved up. What what allowed you to take that kind of action? What what allowed you to have that kind of vision for the, that opportunity that you had? So, you know, first of all, I started in 05. And 2005 was 2005 and 6 were the most competitive years in real estate history of the United States. Anybody that wanted money could go to the bank, lie about their stated income, had proved no documentation and they could get lines of credit. I didn't know how to do that. And I didn't, you know, I don't want to get in trouble. So I didn't do yeah. any of that. So I had to try to compete against people with unlimited funds, other people's money, not money they earned. Um, so you go in and buy, like, for example, I just remember one of the first times I was so frustrated. I was trying to buy this property and, um, and I offered, I was like, I didn't have cash. Um, you know, but I, and I, I, I went to offer and I've just said, it'll be an all cash offer. And the guy was like, I don't care if it's cash. Anybody can go get a loan. And I, I just remember it was a very, very com competitive market. So I had to get really good at marketing. I had to get really good at negotiating. And, and that, that struggle between 05 and 08 prepared me with the, 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 
the mental skills that I needed in order to take advantage of a, a downturn. And, you know, there's an old saying that a good sailor is not made on, on calm seas. You know, a lot of people get out of the business when things get tough because they're not prepared for it. And so in 08, when, when the market crashed and we saw the worst economic conditions since the depression, I was prepared. It doesn't mean I wasn't scared. We were all a little like afraid, you know, we were all, we were all like, what the hell is going on here? But I was, I felt prepared. And in 08, I was still working a full-time job. I called my boss in November of 08 and said, Hey, I want today to be my last day. He thought I was crazy at a time. Most people are clinging to job security. I'm, I'm walking away. And, but that allowed me all my time back. So I saw the opportunity, the market's crashing. I'm, I've got this job. I need all my time so I can take advantage of this opportunity. And, uh, you know, courage is, is, is basically taking action, even though you might be fearful and it, it, you know, it paid off. So I had about 20 grand in cash, um, built up in November of 08. And within four and a half years and 30 houses in four and a half years, I had over a million in cash net liquid, my own cash in the bank. I, I was making seven figures, paying taxes on seven figures a year with my wholesaling and flipping business. And I, and I had 450 houses in my portfolio by 2013. And so um, it paid off, right? It's like, uh, it was, it was an amazing opportunity and I took a major advantage of it. And, and that really propelled me through, um, you know, even, even now, you know, it's like, it's pretty yeah. wild. So someone hearing that is going to probably be like, <clears throat> okay, uh, that's pretty crazy, but how'd you do it? Like, down to down to the nitty gritty logistics like how do you execute on something like that and i think a lot of what you may say is going to be applicable to today right it comes down to marketing mm -hmm. and sales and your systems mm -hmm. and processes but what did you do at that time being newer to the business what did you do to like actually execute and get those kind of results so here's the thing that people that have never been through a really really bad downturn don't realize your marketing if you get good at marketing during the the tough times during a good market your marketing works 10 times better and you don't have conversation i can remember in 2008 talking to sellers um you know and i, I was having conversations that went like this hey mr seller you know you know here's my here's my offer on on your house and and they would be like you're crazy you don't know what you're talking about i would never sell my house that cheap you're trying to take advantage of me and i'm like well, the market's crashing i got i can't i can't overpay for your house as it's falling in value you don't know what you're talking about i talked to my realtor this is a key point i talked to my realtor and my realtor told me the market is not crashing it's going sideways and this thing's coming right back out and and so uh i went from that conversation in 2008 to mid 2009 and the conversation went like this please please buy my house please i've talked i need to sell my house please buy my house that's the difference i was taking phone calls in 2009 and after people were begging me to buy their house and the people that i didn't buy their house in 08 I still bought, I didn't buy it from them. I just bought it from the bank. Mm. I still bought their house. 
So, so you got to understand right now you can get on a phone with a seller and they're like, you know, they look on Zillow. Hey, Zillow says my house is worth 250 grand. That's what, that's the price they want. They're not they're They don't think there's no problems. So, so you got to get really good at negotiating to be able to talk a seller down and get a, the house, the price you want, but it's going to get easier. So that's what happened. And all of a sudden I picked up major steam. Now, some of the other so so all the marketing I, I remember to the point where i had to shut my marketing off because all of a sudden the same amount of marketing was bringing in more leads than i could handle people were begging me to buy their house so so that's one thing people that maybe haven't gone through um the marketing gets cheap it gets easy to buy here's the other thing that happens the richest people the people with all the money are not buying houses right now all your cash buyers that are buying houses, it's not the real buyers. The real buyers stopped buying in 2014, 2015, when they when it became too much effort to get a good deal. Those buyers are just waiting to come out of the woodwork. So what ended up happening was I didn't sell to a hundred different buyers when I was in in 2008-9. There was there was fifty buyers that had 10 million, 20 million, 50 million cash. Hmm. And they they make their move. They do, they're, they're, these are very wealthy people that make their move with least, the least amount of effort. They don't look at what opportunity can pay me the most. They look at what opportunity pays me the most with the least amount of effort. They want easy money. So, so what I did was I wholesaled a four to one ratio. I hope so. How did I go from twenty thousand in cash to a million cash? Keeping in mind, I blew a million between in that those years on Rolex watches, <laughs> Lamborghini, Lamborghini. I'm not like I, I had Rolex of the month deal. There were times I'd go and buy three of it, three of them at a time. And this is what guys. I lived in a three hundred square foot apartment in two thousand five when I got into real estate. Paid two hundred seventy five dollars a month for rent. I had no cash. By the time 2013 hit, I'm or less than I think I started buying watches in 10, 10, 11, paid cash for Lamborghini in 2010, was buying a Rolex a month. I, my Rolex collection is pretty amazing, and most of those are all worth 50, 60, 70, 80,000 a piece. I had more money than I knew what to do with. Literally, like I'm not telling anybody watching this, don't go out and do that. That's not smart. There's better places to put your money, but I had fun. And so, um, and so, you know. I was doing a lot of wholesaling and I was the solution guy. I realized these people with money, they they wanted no complexity. They didn't want to get wholesale the house and then figure out who's going to rehab it. Where am I getting insurance? Who can I who can I finance it at later down the road with? How do I get this done and that done? And what I realized is is I started becoming like a what I called like a full service wholesaler. Mm. If I if I learned a bottleneck of one of these buyers with lots of cash, they just they just don't want complexity. Hey, I need an insurance guy. Okay, I'd I'd go call all the insurance people in town, find the guy that gives the best service and the best rates, make an introduction, let them take it from there. I'd find the best banker that was easy to work with that could move quick and and lived up to their promises, and I'd make a connection. And every time I did that. I became more valuable to um, to these big investors. And I had one guy multiple times. I mean, I remember in like 
in 2011 or 12, I got offered um, from an attorney in town. I got offered $250,000 salary. Hey, stop doing that. Come over here. Work for me full time. You buy my, you can just, and just work for me for two, 250000 a year. And I was like, I'm already making more than that. And then I had eventually had a hedge fund reach out and say, we'll, we'll pay you 500 grand a year to, you know, to run our acquisition department. And I said, no way, I'm making more money than that. And then they offered me a million and I still turned them down. And, and so those, but I made it easy for those people. So that's really the, the thing I did. I wholesaled a ton of houses that brought in a ton of cash. Then I take some of that cash, live on it, uh, took a big chunk of that cash, put it in my savings account, and then took the rest of that cash and went invested in my own properties that I could now fix and flip or, um, or hold as rentals. And what ended up happening is, is this will blow most people's minds. We're talking about bank failures like crazy back then. Banks got in trouble for all these risky loans. And during that time, banks were giving me no money down deals because I had, I had liquidity, I had high income, and I had a solid net worth by 2012, 13. So I didn't have to put money down. In a time when few people were, not, were, were getting loans, I was just pointing to houses and the bank said, yeah, we'll give you all the cash and all the rehab. Now that's common now, that happens now, but that was very rare back then because banks were getting scrutinized with all the bad loans that they gave out. So that's how I ended up going from 30 houses to 450 in a four and a half year period. Now there's a lot of other systems and processes baked in there because you got to be able to manage, you know, 20, 20 plus rehabs a month. And you got to have the staff to do that. You got to be able to handle the acquisition side, which was the easiest part because people were giving their houses away. Um, but that's basically the the rundown of how, how I did it. So what, who did you learn from to, to learn all that kind of stuff? Was there a book? Was there a coaching program? Did you have mm -hmm. prior experience and background in that kind of stuff? What, what, what gave you the information to do that? I never, before I got into real estate, I only rented. I had never put a roller on a frame and painted a wall ever in my life. I, my parents always rented. They never owned. I didn't know anything about home ownership. I didn't have any construction background. I worked in a machine shop. So um, really, I learned from the, the school of hard knocks. Now, I bought a lot of books. I read every book I could get my hands on. Like literally, like that, that, that was my move. And I paid for coaching early on in 05. But it wasn't anything that could prepare me for buying as many houses and building the company. I learned most of that. I didn't keep in mind, this is back before Facebook. This is yeah. back before masterminds. None of that stuff existed back then. So I kind of just learned on the fly. I learned from doing. Hey, what's up, guys? If you want to learn more about how you can join my community where I'm going to work with you hands on, make sure you click that link down below. Let's go. That's pretty crazy. Um, but what what do you what do you think about your personality that kind of allowed you to do that? Because I think most people need to be shown the path at some some point, right? And mm -hmm. would you say books were kind of what helped fill in some of those gaps and and show you the path? Yeah, I mean, um, 
I remember I read this book. Uh, so I, I read, of course, I read all the real estate books everybody else reads and, you know, you learn from them, but none of them give you any, like, none of them really give you any of the details that you really need. You know, it's, it's just a 200 page book or whatever gives you the ideas. Um, but I remember reading this book um, early on. I, I think I read this book in 2007 or eight, 2007. It was called 52 homes in 52 weeks. Um, written by a guy named Dolph DeRoos. And I remember, yeah, um, so I read that book and I, I didn't have anybody to talk to. I worked all day. I came home and I was by myself. I didn't know a single person doing what I was doing. Facebook wasn't a thing. I didn't have anybody to talk to. And I really was alone. And I remember reading this book, 52 Homes in 52 Weeks. There, there were two things I want to tell you about that opened up my mind. I read this book, 52 Homes in 52 Weeks, and it it blew my mind. I believed everything I read. I'm assuming it's all true. I'm I'm very naive in that sense that I I believe when I read a book that it's it's possible. And then next year I did um I did 19 houses the year I read the book. The next year I did 50, I think it was 54 houses. Uh, that I did. The other thing is <clears throat> I was sitting in an air airport um, right around about that time. I was sitting in an airport in Detroit and um, my phone rang and it was one of my, it was a friend of mine from like California. And we were talking about, um, he, he was mentioning, he mentioned something. He, he was asking me, like he learned some technique called like subject to financing. And I didn't know anything about that. And I and and I, there was a guy three seats down from me that I mentioned a do on sale clause because I read it in one of the books or something. And anyway, he couldn't, the guy three seats down from me couldn't hear the conversation. He could just hear one side. And I get off the phone and this guy walks over to me and he says, hey, man, um, you won't have to worry about that do on sale clause thing you were talking about the chances of that ever happening are pretty small. And I'm like, who are you? And um, <laughs> he said, um, my name's, his name is Lou Castillo. I don't know if you know Lou. Um, I haven't I talked to him. I do. I only talked to him one time. Um, I found him on Facebook at one, at one point. And I, and I immediately, I had like 10 minutes before my flight was boarding. And I'm like, so do you do a lot of deals? He goes, yeah. I said, have you ever done over 50 deals in a year? Oh yeah. I said, how do you do it? He goes, I do it all through wholesaling. And um, and so um, that also gave me the belief that I could do 50-some deals. So I read that book, and then I talked to him. Only conversation I ever had with the guy. Um, and it just I believed that it was true. And, and that was what gave me the internal belief that I could do it. And then I did it. And then I did, I did like 54 deals and... So I did 12 deals in 05 or in, between 05 and 6, then 10 next year, then 19, then 54, and then 100, 100 plus. And then I got to the point where I was doing a couple hundred plus a year. In 2013 or 14, I did 1,000 deals. Okay. So can you share what market or markets you're in? Mm -hmm. So I'm in, uh, and I've been in a lot of markets. Um, I, I, I'm in Davenport, Iowa. Um, I'm in Metro Detroit. Those are my two favorite markets. Uh, oh. I'm in 
I'm in um, Indianapolis a little bit, Kansas City, St. Louis. Um, I've had, I've owned, I've done a few hundred deals in Chicago. I've done a few hundred in Minneapolis. Um, I've owned a couple hundred rentals in Kansas City, um, but I'm still doing wholesaling there. So I've been uh, in a few different areas. So, so why? So let's let's talk about the whole market thing because I hear people talk about. Uh, where should I do my investing? Should I do it where mm. I'm living? Should I do it in the Midwest? Should I do it in the big cities? What's your mm. take on that? Maybe start with sharing where you do live, you know, or have you moved a lot of different places? And mm. did that have any influence to to where you decided to invest? Well, yeah, I mean, um, I used to live in I used to live in the Metro Detroit area. I didn't really know the area very well. I didn't live there very long. Uh, I don't think that really had too much of an impact on why I'm doing deals there. But I think I get asked that question a lot. Like, should I buy houses where I live? And I th I don't think that's a bad idea. Um, you know, I mean, if you know, the, if you kind of know the neighborhoods a little bit, it kind of helps with comping. But the bottom line is, I don't go to houses ever. I don't go to if I if I got a house down the street, and it would, I still wouldn't go to it. Um, so you can do all this stuff virtually. It's very, the virtual business is, is pretty normal now. I did my first virtual wholesale deal in Kansas City uh, probably 15 years ago. So um, so it, that, that was unusual back then. Very few people were doing virtual real estate back then. And now it's pretty common. So, you know, like there's no reason you don't, if you're going to wholesale the house. So here, here's, here's my take. Here's my opinion. If you're going to do fix and flips, do them in your backyard. If you're going to do rental properties, do them in your backyard. If you're going to do wholesaling, do it anywhere. You can just decide. Um, you know, if it, you know, but you got to keep an eye on when you got real money into a project, you got to keep an eye on it. Um, now, once you've become sophisticated and you have a real life experience, then you can do fix and flips outside of your area and you can do rental properties outside your area. But you got to understand you're going to have a lot of problems in the beginning. So you got to be able to weather the storm. So, um, but the, the, the wholesaling thing, if you're in a big, if you're in a market that's very, um, a bigger city, let's say, that's really competitive, maybe a coastal area, you can do deals there. It's just, you're going to do fewer of them. Now, the upside to that is you're going to make more money on those because the higher the ARV, the bigger your spreads can get. So if you're dealing with Midwest towns where the houses are 200 grand, you're probably looking at wholesale fees in the 10 to $20,000 range. If you're, if you're in you know, a coastal area or somewhere more expensive that's got $500,000 million houses, you're, you're going to see wholesale fees of 50,000 plus. Mm -hmm. So there's some pluses and minuses. If you're really short on time and you're doing this really, really part time, you're better off going to a market that maybe you don't have to do as much volume to make the money. But you're going to have to what you know, you're going to have to, you know, it's going to take time. Um, the It's easier to build consistent deal flow in the Midwest, which is why I so my business model is a little different. I don't want to be involved. I don't want to be, I don't want to do, I don't want to talk to a seller. I don't want to decide how much we offer on a price of, of a house. I don't want to determine what we're going to sell the house for on the wholesale side. I don't want to figure comps. I don't want to talk to, I don't want to be involved at all. 
zero. I want to look at KPIs every day. I want to have a meeting with my team once a week. And I want to, I want to keep, I want to help problem solve when a problem comes up through a meeting, not, not real life time. Cause I don't want to be on the phone or anything like that. Like I put, I put about two and a half hours a month into my wholesaling business. And that's how I like it. And the reason that 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 make is possible is because we we just deal with very simple deals. I don't do creative financing ever. I don't do anything that requires my talent. Um, so so my model is Midwest properties, easy to comp, lots of buyers available. My team can my team can do the do the details, and my team is all virtual assistants. I love that. I love that because, uh, like I mentioned before, when you're focused on wholesaling, you make a business out of it. It's not you having to reinvent or recreate or be creative, right? The creative aspect takes a much mm -hmm. higher skilled level of person to be able to execute on that. And when you're mm -hmm. dealing with flips and different things like that, usually there's more involved there, but uh, mm -hmm. And there's more that can go wrong as well. Mm -hmm. With the wholesaling, it's a yeah. lot more streamlined. So it, you said you didn't want to be involved. You don't want to be taking calls. You want to have your freedom. You want to build your business around the way you want to live. How did you get to that point? Because to get there is no easy, small feat, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. And you had to no. do all this at the beginning yourself. So yeah, so you have how to, you get there. Yeah. So I did a very simple process. Um, simple, but requires work. What I did was I took out a notebook when I decided I wanted to be kind of like work my way out of the business. Cause I I've here's the other piece. Like I, I I've paid my dues. I've been every position and I've done thousands of deals myself where I talked to the seller and I handled everything and I displayed the house. But what I did was I wrote down every single job that I did in the business on a piece of paper. And I just kept track of it for like a week as I was going through my day-to-day, -day, how I'm buying and selling houses. Then I took one thing at a time and I started writing out and I did a lot of video processes. Like, here's how I'm doing this thing. I would turn on screen record on my computer. I would screen share as far as like the, where I'm, if I used a website to do a specific task or I just record my voice because I'm a really slow typer. Um, and, and I would pick one thing at a time and I would hand it off to somebody. Then I would pick the next thing and I would hand it off to somebody. And then they would do it wrong. And I realized I messed up the process a little bit. I forgot to add a couple of things and I would fix it and I would hand it off. And I did that for several months until, and I was diligent about like really getting up really early in the morning and, and doing like spending the first two hours, just getting processes done. Mm. And, and then I would hand it off teach, train, answer questions. And then that thing was off my plate. And then the next thing was off my plate. And then the next thing was off my plate. And, uh, and so, uh, there's two other things I did along with that to that made it, that made it work. One was I had anybody I was training I had them build a spreadsheet because I, I didn't like getting lots and lots of questions all day long. When you when you lose all your time in the course of your day and you have to work 12 hours and you're really, really busy, it's not because you're doing this thing over here that takes an hour and this thing over here that takes an hour and a half and I'm 60 minutes. And that's not what burns all your time. 
it's death by a thousand cuts. It's, it's, I just got sidetracked for two minutes over here. Now I got to start back. I just got sidetracked for a five minute phone call. I just got sidetracked for 10 minutes. That's what kills your time. So one of the things that I did, and this works great, is I built an FAQ sheet and, and I'm a slow typer, so I don't type. So I would put, would tell anybody I'm training build two columns in your spreadsheet. On one column on the left, put your question. Whatever the question is, I don't know how to do this. On the other side, next column, you're putting the answer. And every day at the end of the day, you're going to keep track of all the questions that you couldn't figure out throughout the day. And at the end of the day, we're going to spend 10 to 15 minutes. Mm. We're going to get on the call and you're going to tell me the question and I'm a slow typer, so I'm not going to type. And I'm going to tell you what to type into the answer. So I would tell them, like, they'd say, hey, how do I do this and this? Here's how to do it. Type it in there. Now they typed it. Now they're remembering it better. And we've kept track. And now we have a documentation. So they, if they have to ask that question again, they can go back and say, hey, I already asked that one. Here's how to do it. Here's, And then I, if I have to train anybody new, I have it. I love so that. that's like. Mm -hmm. I'm going to, I'm going to implement that in my business. Cause, uh, it, it's honestly little small things like that, Matt, that make the difference. I mean, we're all mm -hmm. looking for this, this big, easy button. We're looking for this like new next thing. That's going to change everything. A any big change I've noticed in my business have been, been all back to the small little thing. So that, those are great examples, uh, and and I'm going to implement one of those for sure. The the other thing I did was I stopped after I got somebody like 75 percent of the way there. People lack confidence, and they they want to yeah. get the answer. The problem is giving them the answer is not solving the problem. It's kind of like the analogy I use is if you've ever went on vacation somewhere new that you've never been. And you were going to be there for like a week or maybe two weeks. And you you used your phone or a GPS to get around everywhere. Every time you wanted to go somewhere, you turn, just plug the address in and you go right there. The problem is at the end of the week or two weeks, you still don't know where you're going. You, yeah. If you don't have your GPS, you're guilty. You're, even though you've been driving those streets for two weeks, you still don't know. So what I realized is that's just human behavior. So what I did is I stopped answering questions. Once I got them trained and I, people still lack confidence, they can't make decisions. They can't, they're afraid. So I stopped answering their questions and I just said, they'd ask me a question. Hey, I don't, I don't know how to do this. And I'd say, okay, well, how do you think you should do it? And they would tell me, well, I think I should do it like this. And I would either say, yes, that's right. That's exactly what I would have done. Or I'd say, well, I would do that. But here, why don't we try this? So when I stopped asking or when I stopped answering questions and I started asking questions, they started to think for themselves. They started to learn the roads to knew how, where to turn and would recognize landmarks in the analogy of, you know, not using a GPS. They started to build confidence and they learn to solve problems. And once you build, you get some, you throw some confidence on somebody, it's game over. That's that's huge. I had someone on my team today say that they were struggling with confidence, and I was asking how I can help them through that. And we were doing some of the exercises of, 
you gain confidence through competence. And a lot of that is you taking more ownership of what you're doing and working through the problem actively yourself rather than relying just on someone else or not even bringing that problem up to the surface because you're, 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 you're not wanting to be, um, you know, thought of as someone that doesn't know what they're doing. Right. And I think mm -hmm. that's a common fear that we have, but I think I, I'm assuming you're the same way, Matt, like I'd rather that problem be brought to the surface so we can address it, fix it and resolve it and not make it a problem anymore than, you know, brush it under the rug. Mm -hmm. No, I always tell my team, like it's, always ask the question you want to you want to be in a, a learning environment you want to you want to make learning part of you don't you can't expect everybody to know everything and if you're an entrepreneur and you've been through you've run the roads for some years you can't expect a new person to know what you know you got they got to ask questions and um it's not their fault that they don't know it it's probably your fault anyway True. because yeah. you, didn't, you didn't show them yeah so you know um if you've got a good written process, if you bring somebody on and you've got a good written process or video process, that should be their first week anyway, where they just watch all your systems and processes on how to do their job. That's that's what proper onboarding is. If you if you have a brand new employee, I don't care if they have five years experience doing what it is that you you want them to do for your company. Every company does things differently. Yeah. And probably the other company they used to work for isn't as sharp as your company. So how can you expect them to know how you do things? So you're nobody onboards. They just throw them in the fire and hope they figure it out. We actually do real onboarding and we make sure they're, they're trained up before we ever put them in, in, in the, on the job. That's awesome. Um, so tell me about that. We, you've talked men several times about having your VAs, your virtual assistants, not boots on the ground. Is that mm -hmm. true? Do you not have a boots on the ground model? Do you not have people that are on payroll that are going to properties and inspecting mm -hmm. them and things like so, that? No, no. So the the um, the wholesaling company has no boots on the ground at all. Um, nobody, and we don't even have a person in the marketplace there. I don't even live. I don't. I'm at my lake house. I, I'm here all the time. I don't even live in in the areas that we that we wholesale. So what we do is, <clears throat> let me just explain the process. Again, it's all done with virtual assistants. So what ends up happening is once that op once that house goes under contract. So, well, let me back up because this will probably shock people. But we do marketing. That marketing goes out. We love texting and cold calling. Those are our favorite channels. Once that lead comes in, it comes into a lead manager. So we have a virtual assistant do cold calling. We have a virtual assistant do texting. They generate leads. When that lead comes in, it goes to a lead manager. Lead manager determines good lead or bad lead. Okay. Bad lead might be zero equity. Bad lead might be fire burnt house that we don't like messing with. Bad lead might be house gutted to the studs that too, too much trouble to try to wholesale. So bad lead, mark dead. Good lead gets handed off to acquisitions VA. Acquisitions VA does a two call system that I created. The first call is not an offer call. By design, we don't want to make an offer on the first call. We yep. want to do discovery. So we're gonna we're gonna call the seller. We're gonna build rapport, find out why the seller's selling, learn all about the pain points, and learn all about the house. Once we've had that first call, it's gonna take about twenty to twenty five minutes, thirty minutes, then not three minutes. If you're doing a discovery call in three minutes, you're doing it wrong. One hundred. So 
So you you take that information, you transfer it back to the lead manager. They review everything that about the house. They crunch numbers and um, run comps and determine max offer price. Once they have the max offer price, and notice acquisitions person didn't do comps and crunch numbers. Very important. Love it. We always give that to a separate person. We don't want the same person making the offer doing his own math. So <laughs> they get the max offer price. They do acquisitions uh, calls, does call number two. They call and do the offer. Now, there's a lot of, we don't have time to go through my whole process, but once they get a hot offer accepted, they, and they get it in writing and con under contract, we haven't seen the house yet. We made an offer sight unseen, but we did a walkthrough process that, that helps us understand what the house looks like. Um, so now we have it under contract. What we do is we use Craigslist and Facebook marketplace to find a local picture person. We did this in advance, a local picture person. They don't need a camera, a high value camera. They need an iPhone. This, these are not magazine cover houses here. These are beat up homes. It's not like you're taking wedding pictures here. It doesn't have to be high res. So, so they, we find somebody for 50 bucks off of Craigslist and or Facebook marketplace to take pictures. We then find the closest Home Depot or Lowe's near that house. We go online, we buy a lockbox and set it up for curbside pickup. The picture person, we give the message, go over there to that Home Depot, buy the lockbox, set the code, drive to the house, meet the seller. Get our 50 pictures of the house that we need and a walkthrough sheet filled out that we ask a few questions about the house. They fill that out. They take all the pictures. They leave, set the keys and lockbox, code set. They send us all the information. Now we have a, a house that we can wholesale. So that now that we review the pictures and determine if the seller was being accurate with our conversation, 50% of the time they're not, we might have to do a reduction call. But if the pictures are accurate from what the seller said, then we we dispo the house. That's our process. I love that. It is so similar to how we do it. Um, I, I want to highlight a couple of things you said there that are so important, just so it sticks in people's mind. You need to have a two-step closing process. You need to gather information. You're not trying to make that decision on that first call. Although some deals will present themselves that so they're ready to sell right then and there and they give you the price and it's so good you, you got to take it right um but two step process i love that you said that you don't let the person who's making the offer run the numbers too we separated that out as well to where we have someone who specializes and is experienced knowing what those houses are worth given the the opinion and and it it arms that acquisitions person to just stay focused at what they're good at. They're not mm -hmm. having to now be good at so many different things and stress out about what this house is worth. Now I got to go try to defend this number. No, it's just like get really good and specialize and in, in be in your lane. I love that so much. And to to the to to folks that are believing that they can only get it done with boots in the ground. Now, by the way. I have a boots on the ground model to where I'm, I am the local guy, right? I have team members there. They will go on appointments, but we kind of have a hybrid model to where in areas that are a little bit further than where we want to have our guys getting in the car and driving, 
we we basically enroll and enlist our our buyers, our good top paying buyers as our boots on the ground. And we have them go on the appointments for us, take the pictures, and even sometimes take the contract to get signed for us. And then once they're done, because they they get the deal, they understand the opportunity in front of them. We say, well, this is the price we want. Do you want it for that? And because they are just so happen to be our good buyers, a lot of times they end up taking that property down and it's so mm-hmm. streamlined, you know? So I love that you do that as well. Mm-hmm. The other thing is, um, you know, you got to stay away from, like people waste a lot of time on on bad deals. Like they're trying to make deals work that, that are time wasters. And, and then sure. it just builds frustration and it, it kills momentum. And you really just want to make it, streamline for what what's easy like for example occupied properties they're the worst you know we have a process to wholesale occupied properties but it's always more complexity so we try to stay with vacant homes that's who we market to and it just makes the whole process easier and and you get two choices easy money or hard money you pick but your (laughs) system process is going to determine what it is yeah so I love the simplicity of that. How does that? How does someone make that a reality, Matt? So, uh, my my argument for the person getting started, I can't find a deal. I'll take any deal that I can, right? I'll, I'll if it's a hard deal, I'll, I'll figure it out. I'll get through it. I just need to get a deal. How do you mm-hmm. how do you over overwhelm yourself with the easy deals to keep busy enough? How can you avoid the hard deals by being so good at finding the easy deals? So here's the here's the mathematical form, and I've repeated this in more markets with more people than I can count. This will work, um, and this does work. You the magic number six offers a day. That when I when I talk to somebody that's struggling, they're like, I'm like, man, they're just like, I can't get deals. I'm having a hard time. I don't know what to do. And these are sometimes pretty smart guys. Um, I'm like, well, let's just start with the basics. How many offers are you making a week? Well, I'm making like one. Okay, well, there's a, pro- a problem. Problem over. We know <laughs> yeah. what the problem. There it is. So, so, so you got to make six offers a day. Six offers a day. Now, I'm going to back up the leads in a second. Six offers a day is thirty offers a week. Thirty offers a week will get you a deal. Okay. A deal a week. A deal a week. A deal a week. Yep. Yeah. A deal a week. Thirty offers a day will get you a deal. It's basically thirty offers a week will get you three to five closed deals. Now, yeah. to get six offers. You need to be bringing in about 10 leads. You're not going to offer on every single lead. Some of them won't fit your buy box. So you've got to generate 10 leads a day. So step one is generate 10 leads a day. Step two is make six offers a day. How do we generate 10 10 leads a day? We do it through cold calling and texting. There's no cheaper cost per close contract than either, either of those. And they're really easy to get going. So do you, do you do no other forms of marketing? I'm sure you get some from referrals, I, I've done like that, but you're not doing yeah, PC, yeah, no, I, you're not doing TV or. I, I did TV last, I think it was last year now. Time goes by so fast. Um, it was either earlier this year or last year. So I've, I've done, and I did TV 10 years ago too. Um, but I've done TV, radio, billboards, you know, PPC, PPL, um, you Direct mail, tons of. I did direct mail. That was my main form for years and years and years. Texting, cold, like I've done it all, and 
I'm, I'm good at tracking my KPIs. And, and one day you just take a look and you say, okay, this is really ex- my cost per close contract with this channel isn't good. Uh, it's high. This over here is cheap. I'm going to do less of this and more of this. And again, I just try to keep it simple. You got freaking 10 channel, 10 marketing channels going. It's com- it's complexity. It's tracking. Like, you know, it's just, it's just not, it's not easy. So we just keep it super simple. Do what, do what works and what gives us a really good uh, margin and do a lot of it. I love that. Keeping it simple is half the battle for a lot of folks. So uh, mm-hmm. I think that's that's some good wisdom there. Um, yeah, and I and I'll and I'll tell and I'll just mention I'll just one add one more thing. Every marketing cha- like you'll see battles on Facebook like SEO's best, PPC's best, TV's best. Listen, they all work. Every single marketing idea works. Yep. It doesn't. It's not about if it works. It's about what is your cost per close contract. That's what it's about. That's very true. Because if it's costing you a boatload of money to get that deal, well, if a deal slips through, then that means you're you're footing a bill for a while and, and an expensive yeah. one, you know? So, yeah. So I get the luxury because I'm kind of known in the market as I've done thousands of deals. Lots of people get a hold of me. And the thing is, is like I talk to all the highest level guys. They call me when they're in trouble. And I talk to people all the time that on social media, you see, and I would never reveal, I I keep everybody's stuff super private. I've never mentioned a single person's name, but I see guys that are on um, social media and everybody thinks, oh, this guy's a superstar. He's doing a lot of deals. And then I'm having conversations with that guy. He's like, I'm going broke. Right. I'm doing all these deals and I'm not making any money. You know, I, I have those conversations a lot. Um, And I'm like, you gotta, you gotta, you got to focus on your profit, man. That was me in my first handful of years, man. Uh, I, I'm happy to say it, or I should say it's easy for me to say it now. I was I was chasing the, the volume of deals and my profit per deal wasn't big enough. And the profit really wasn't profit because after all your expenses and your overhead, yep. it's like, wait a second, what's left over? How am I going to eat? You know? We've and, all been through that. Every one yeah. of us that's done big volume have, have all woke up one day and saying, what the hell am I doing here? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So that's that's great. Let's let's wrap with what are the best ways for people to make contact with you and you know how can they reach out to you? Yeah. So if you just go to my website, realestatemat.com, right there on the first page, there's all my social profiles. Um, you can, I'm most active on Facebook. So you can, you can go to Facebook and, and find my Facebook, reach out to me. If you, if you ask me a question, I'm going to read, I'm going to respond. And, uh, and it's really me. Um, I do have some team members that help me with responses because we do get a lot of them, but I do, I do respond. And if you have a question, hit me up, you know, I'm not one of those guys. It's like, oh man, you got to pay me. Um, if I'm going to answer that question, I'm not that guy at all. I'll, I'll help you if you reach out. I love that. That's huge. A lot of people won't even respond to their DMs or or get mm-hmm. back to you. So right. that's awesome. Guys, make sure to reach out to Matt. He's a, a wealth of information. He's a huge giver, uh, always dropping gems and knowledge. If you're not following him on social media, you're missing out. Make sure you do. 
Uh, Matt, it's been a pleasure to spend time with you here today, get some wisdom. I took notes like this whole time I've been typing and taking notes. Um, either it's been like reiterating and, and supporting what I, my thoughts have been or giving me new ideas. So I appreciate you for that. And uh, until next time, peace. Enjoyed being on.